Hey everybody, this is episode 22 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I talk with Julie Kaplan, music composer and actor. Julie has written music for dance, theater, and video, and her music has been performed throughout the U.S., in the Czech Republic, and in Nepal. She is a co-founder and performer with the Curious Theater Collective. She performs in the Trans Actors Improv Company and teaches improv to elementary school kids in Chapel Hill. In addition to talking about Julie's background as a composer and improviser, we discuss our experience working together with the Curious Theatre Collective and the play that we and the other members of CTC have written and performed for elementary schools in the Triangle. The title of that play is Sally's Ride to Space and Beyond. It has singing and audience participation and describes Sally Ride's life as the first female American astronaut as well as the past, present, and future of space exploration. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Julie. Hi, Tamara. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about the music component of your life. How did you come to music, and how did you discover or decide that you were a composer? I came to music kind of late in life, actually, relative to most musicians start, you know, when they're five or six. Mm. Um, And I started when I was in middle school. My family had moved from Connecticut to Colorado to this uh, sort of suburban hell. (laughs) And, um, And I was totally alone and isolated there and didn't have any friends for a really long time. And so I was bored a lot of the time. And my dad is a musician. He plays guitar and sings and kind of folk folk music, 60s folk music style. And so one day I asked him if he would show me some chords on his guitar. And uh, I became completely obsessed from that day on and would go in my room and close the door with my guitar and practice chords and write songs. And it was sort like sort of the day that I learned a D and E on the guitar was the day that I started composing. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as I learned, um, like just a simple chord structure, I wanted to write songs. What is it, what is it, or what was it when you were a, a kid that made you feel inspired to write the songs as opposed to finding a coffee house somewhere and performing? I also wrote a lot of poetry sort of before I started writing music. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it was a way for me to take that poetry and put it into a song form. Mm -hmm. So I I, pretty quickly after I started writing songs was playing in coffee shops too. (laughs) Playing your own. Playing my own. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you just continued doing that through high school and into college. Like you knew that was your thing. Yeah, so I I did a lot of creative stuff as a kid. I painted and I did theater. And so I was sort of doing all of those things for a long time through middle and and, uh, high school. And I remember very distinctly at the end of high school, one day my dad took me out to dinner and he said, you can't be the jack of all trades. You have to pick one art form that you want to do and pursue that. Hmm. And uh, so he said, so what's it going to be? Which one are you going to pick? And Music just sort of happened to be the thing that was front of mind that day. And so I said, okay, well, I'll do music. Mm-hmm. And so he said, okay, that's what you have to, you have to pursue that in college and fully go into that and kind of let these other things fall off. Mm-hmm. 
So I was kind of sad about that because I didn't really want to give up the other things, but I also saw his point of needing to fully engage with music at a deeper level. I had never taken lessons still all through high school. I mm. never took lessons or learned music theory. Um, I was totally self-taught. And so I knew that I needed to learn more in, in the sort of academic way if I wanted to really get better. Mm-hmm. So I went to Bennington College and studied music there, which was very, very intimidating because I entered the composition department wow. and all I had was songs on my little acoustic guitar that were very simple. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't quite realize what composition really meant mm-hmm. at that time. So what was it like going from this place of composing essentially from intuition and trial and error to moving in, into a space where you were being taught how to do it? Did you have a lot to adjust to? Yeah, it was a jolt. I felt immediately totally inadequate and uh, felt I had like a lot of self-shaming sort of like, oh, Bob Dylan isn't the cool composer to like, you know, like you, you have to you have to know who the, the real composers are mm-hmm. and the, you know, what's happening now. And um, and my so that was the music I was into going into college was like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, like total 60s mm-hmm. folk music, which was sort of unique, mm-hmm. you know, for a kid at that time in the late 90s. Uh, it was kind of unusual. And my composition professor, Alan Sean at Bennington, just cracked up. He asked me who my who my inspiration was, and I said Bob Dylan, and he just laughed and was like, are you kidding? <laughs> um, and so I really quickly learned to more or less hide that part of my uh-huh. um, journey and became totally immersed in the classical composition world. You went to undergrad, mm-hmm. and then you went to graduate school and you're on the other side of all of that, how would you define yourself now as a composer? Who are your influences, and how, how do your pieces come to you based on all of this education and exposure? Yeah, it's really come full circle, or, or maybe it's just a constant ebb and flow mm-hmm. of who influences me at different times. Certainly, I've, I no longer feel ashamed mm-hmm. of loving folk music and Bob Dylan and those kind of singer-songwriter roots that I have. I now embrace and love, and I also love the the classical, the more contemporary classical music genre as well. So it's it's definitely there's I have a lot of different things that are influencing me all the time, mm-hmm. um, from actual music to just sounds in nature. That was a big part of my graduate graduate program. Um, I was got became very influenced by deep listening, which mm-hmm. is sort of sitting out in nature and hearing all of the different things um, around you are being uh, hearing like mechanical sounds um, or industry, different industry sounds and incorporating that into your work. So I went down like a sound path through, through those years of just sort of collecting sounds and putting them together in computer music. Hmm. So just a huge variety. Can you give us an example of a composition that you found to be particularly exciting or transformative or meaningful to you? Um, in, when I was in grad school and I was sort of going down this path of being really interested in just sound and um, the sort of raw sound and how you can play with that and what's beautiful versus what's ugly, what we're drawn to, what we're repelled to, that kind of thing. I, was, I became really interested in taking traditional instruments and making them sound more like 
sounds mm-hmm. unless like they're what they really are um so so that to kind of make them sound more like electronic music or some of that some of those things that I was recording out in the field I was interested in making like a string quartet sound like mm-hmm. that so I wrote a piece in grad school called flying objects that I took a string quartet and I put um, paper clips on all of their strings and I put like rubber bands and erasers and mm-hmm. all kinds of things and so when they played if they bowed a string it would uh rattle and sound kind of like screeching terrible thing but if they plucked the string it was this beautiful kind of bell-like sound Hmm. that was very different from how the violin or cello would normally sound when you pluck the strings so that that was probably one of my favorite pieces that I've ever worked on and it, it was challenging the players were very hesitant to putting things on their you know eighty thousand yeah. yeah. dollar violin <laughs> but they got on board eventually it's funny that you felt like at a certain point you had to choose one art form over others you had to give one primacy because i do think of you as somebody with varied interests and skills and you're working in a lot of different areas you are also an, an improviser here in the triangle. When did improv come into your life? About five years ago, I took a class with a new tree broad who's in the Transactors Improv Company. And that was somewhat random that I, I decided to do that. I had not been involved with theater since that day, since that time with my dad when he told me to kind of drop it and move on to music. <laughs> and um, and so I had been kind of, I had just had my son. And so I was home a lot and bored and isolated a lot and had recently moved to Chapel Hill. So I was kind of looking for ways to to find myself again, mm. the way you do when mm. you have kids. And so I, I had was sort of frustrated at where I was with music and thought, you know, gosh, theater used to be something that I just loved. And maybe there's some way that I can get involved without it without it being like auditioning for a play, right. which was such a far stretch for me at that time. Um, and so I decided to take her class, her Improv 101 class. And so I took that class with her for about a year. And then I began just sort of joining Transactors rehearsals every now and then. I would just kind of go and play with them a little bit. Then I p- performed in a show with them, which was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and then they asked me to join about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Three, three and a half years ago. Joined their company. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your skills as an improvisational actor and your skills as a composer influence one another? Is there a link that you see bet- between those two art forms? Absolutely. I would say that improv theater has certainly influenced my composition, the way that I approach improvising and music. Hmm. The difference is I don't in music I don't improvise with a group, and of course everything in improv theater is about the group. Right. And so it, there's it's interesting to think about how the two how the two um, interact with each other. And then as far as music influencing my you know feeling towards being on the stage improvising in a play, so we do in Transactors we do improvised musicals mm-hmm. about twice a year. Yes, I've seen those. They're amazing. So this seems like something that I should be really good at. <laughs> uh, but it's incredibly hard. 
it's so hard and I and I actually feel like my compositional background doesn't really help me in the way that I would hope that it would because it's there's just so many things that you're thinking of at the same time that's very different when you're composing hmm. um, at the piano or you know with whatever instrument you play so in improvised theater when you're trying to do a musical you're thinking of the scene and the context of the scene and being true to your character. So that's like one thing that's that's really heavily on your mind all the time that takes up a lot of mental space. And then now you're introducing lyrics mm -hmm. that that are hopefully in some way poetic or have some kind of metaphor. Maybe they rhyme, which is like <laughs> even better. So that's that, that's three things which already like that's plenty to take up your mind. But now you're thinking of you're hearing the piano and you're trying to match the key that he's in and have the melody be interesting mm -hmm. and uh, and feel musically when to come in and when the phrase is done and feel intuitively where he's going with the music. And then the hardest part is remembering what you just did so that you can bring it back. Improvising music in that way is is one of the hardest things I've done in music. You know, sit me down any day with paper and pencil at the piano and all, mm -hmm. you know, I'll write out something for orchestra. Like, you know, that for, to me feels almost easier hmm. than the pressure of doing all of those things at the same time on stage in front of an audience. Right, right. Yes, I don't know how you all do that. It's amazing to watch. When you are sitting down at the piano ready to write a new piece of music, whether that's, you know, you just have something in your mind or somebody essentially has commissioned you to do it. How do you approach that? I get inspiration from several sort of different areas. One area that I've gotten a lot of inspiration from is science and nature. And then another area might be text, so like a poem. Mm -hmm. And then another area is sort of like the emotional arena mm -hmm. of like love or disappointment or whatever. And so, so thinking of it not as a commission, but just sort of my, op I can choose whatever I want. Those are sort of the three buckets that I tend to look into for mm -hmm. inspiration and ideas. And I would say probably the majority of my um, work has come from this, the like science nature bucket. Hmm. Interestingly, yeah. I feel like it, there's just a never ending wealth of inspiration um, in nature around us. And it's just a great a great resource for finding inspiration, hmm. musical, you know, to express something musically. You mean writing a song about trees or listening to the rustle of leaves or what, what do you mean when you say that you look to nature and science for inspiration? Yeah, so for example, I wrote a piece called The Pollinator. It was about pollination that had saxophone and string quartet and trumpet. And so it in, so the way that I'm approaching like that inspiration is either sonically, like I'm trying to make it sound like bees maybe mm -hmm. in some moments, or in other moments I'm thinking of the actual process of what's happening when, when uh, something is being pollinated, what is actually happening, mm -hmm. and using that to inspire something that maybe the listener can't perceive, but it help, it's, it's part of my process. And yes, I wrote a piece called The Iceberg that's, you know, thinking about an iceberg and it melting. And so, again, it's like I go back and forth between using like ideas of how that would sonically, how mm -hmm. the audience might perceive that sonically. And then how like scientifically the atoms and the molecules and how, how, how like what's actually happening when an iceberg starts to melt and how, how can I represent that in my music? Hmm. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about the Curious Theater Collective, which is a group that you and I are in together, along with Jerilyn Schilke, Emma Nadeau, Jessica Fleming. The mission of Curious Theater Collective is to tell the stories of remarkable women through original theater programming, inspiring young audiences to follow their curiosity, persevere through challenges, and believe in the power of their imagination. Jerry Lynn Schilke approached us in September of 2016 to come together and write essentially musicals or theater pieces for elementary school kids. Why did this appeal to you, this venture? And, and why did you decide to jump on board with the rest of us, given that we didn't know that where this would go? I'm a big believer in get the right people on the bus and then figure out where the bus is going. And I liked the people that were in the bus. <laughs> and I was sort of less concerned about necessarily where it was going. I mean, it sounded pretty good. What Jerry Lynn sort of proposed sounded interesting. It wasn't something I had ever considered or been passionate about potentially pursuing. Mm -hmm. And so, but I was interested because I liked who was involved. I had worked with you before. I had worked a little bit with Emma before. And I knew Jerry Lynn through the Art Center mm -hmm. and working with the trans actors. Um, and so I was just really intrigued about working with you guys. It's a great group of people. I'm just, I can't say enough about you all and how wonderful you've been to work, to work with. What is it like to compose for children's theater? You've written three songs for the piece that we have right now about Sally Ride. Is that approach different than composing for adults? It's certainly very different from the sort of classical experimental music that I've <laughs> written about pollination and icebergs. But it's it brings me back to my songwriting days, mm -hmm. for sure. I had, um, like I said, I had sort of abandoned that um, through college and grad school. And then after having kids, I came back to it, came back to songwriting naturally. I don't even know how to explain how it happened. Mm -hmm. I play the piano and sing songs to my kids every night for mm -hmm. eight years when they go to bed. And I just, it just started turning into this time where I started writing songs again. Mm -hmm. And the songs that I was writing for my kids were, well, they're songs for kids. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to write these songs for Curious Theater Collective, it I had already felt like I had sort of greased the wheels and had been kind of doing that. Been practicing. I had been practicing, and I had this great audience mm -hmm. who um, I could. They're very used to hearing me write songs. My daughter will come and give me lyric suggestions and stuff. And so when I wrote the songs for this play, my kids would give me a lot of feedback and tell me what they liked and what they didn't like and what parts were you know they could memorize really easily and sing back to me. And so that was very different than composing for you know an orchestra head down like pencil and paper kind of attitude which is much more serious so you have been playing and singing original songs to your kids for all of these years yes is there a particular song that you're willing to share just to tell us what one that they really like i i would say that the most popular songs are the one i wrote about granddad <laughs> Um, which sort of tells the story about my dad and things that I love about him and, th and things that they love about him. He played football when he was a kid and he like had this dog who he would go through. The just sort of taking the stories he's told me his whole life. I sort of put that into a song. That's one that's requested every night. And then I have a couple of good night songs that they, that they love and request nightly. So th those, those 
the two good night songs and the granddad songs are like a nightly hmm. occurrence. Oh, I love that. What a wonderful family tradition. Those and your kids are gonna remember those songs forever. I mean, they if they decide to have children, they will sing those songs to their kids too, I bet. Yeah, it's funny. I I hadn't considered that until just sort of very recently as they're getting my daughter's eight now and she now has those songs memorized and sings them herself and sits at the piano and tries to figure stuff out and Mm -hmm. is learning how to play the granddad song. And and so that's really amazing to see. Seems like it's also a wonderful way to empower your children as creators or artists because to them, these are, quote, real songs. They're songs that – and they're songs that you – came up with so they can do that too you know what I mean from a very young age they learn that we can create ourselves in our homes that our moms can do it that and that is legit art that's a really powerful lesson yeah it's it's neat to see them respond to like that it's just a normal part of being is creating Mm -hmm. and and I see them doing that like that you don't have to sort of get permission to start creating it can just be part of your natural everyday thing is like oh now I'm gonna write a song at the piano they you know they do that all the time I love the songs that you composed for the Sally Ride play uh, for lots of reasons but one that you just talked about is that they're so sticky they're so singable when I would practice around the house and sing them to my daughter she would be able to sing them back and then I would hear her singing them you know just wandering around the house and so they definitely have that in the best possible way, earworm quality, where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get this melody out of my head. Um, and I think that's wonderful for a children's show because that's what you want, especially when children participate, as we ask them to do, uh, you want them to be able to catch on really, really quickly. You worked with Emma Nadeau to finish the songs, essentially, to make them performable in front of the kids. She plays the accordion and the ukulele in the show. And how did that sort of finishing process work? Yeah, so I had written the songs on piano and we knew that we couldn't have piano in in these spaces. That wouldn't be practical. And so I tried to imagine how, what other instrument we could use that would give a similar kind of effect or some kind of effect that I had in my imagination. So Emma and I talked about different options and I went over to her music room in her house, which was <laughs> pretty fun. And so we just sort of tried some different things out and it was, it was actually pretty quick and easy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very, she's so creative and ha- just has millions of ideas and is able to just sort of roll with things and is flexible and, and yeah, just lots of good ideas. And so it was, it was really pretty easy. The songs were more or less finished. And so I just gave her the chords and she just kind of messed around with her accordion. And I had the idea in mind that one of the songs would have this kind of like reggae (laughs) feeling. And so we decided to do that on accordion. And so, yeah, so she picked that up really quick and it was really, she's really great to work with. In addition to working with her on finishing the songs or making them performable in front of the kids, we also all wrote a script together in a collaborative style what was that process like for you because it took a while it was over a you know was it a year it was about a year about a year of writing from start to finish Mm -hmm. and we're still making tweaks to it as we go (laughs) that was a really interesting process it felt a little bit against my nature in some ways I I've my favorite way to create is collaborating with other people that's something I discovered in grad school 
that I have a real passion. That's like, I love working alone too, but working with other people is, I, I love that. And so I've worked a lot with choreographers and um, and I have sort of a certain process that I'm mm-hmm. used to. Like, I'm the music person, you're the choreographer person. You're going to do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. We're going to like have a schedule and we're going to do it and we're going to have a performance. And this was so different because we were all working on the same thing. We were all working on the script and we didn't have a timeline really. Mm-hmm. We, we all were really busy and there was no one directing it. There was no one saying, well, I own the script and you and we're all going to still work on it together, but I'm the one who's going to drive it. You know, mm-hmm. we were all sort of accountable to the same thing, which is really unusual and seems like it shouldn't really work right. that well. And so it was a little bit against my nature to do that and to jump into that. And so I just sort of thought, we'll just be patient with it and see what happens and maybe it'll take a long time. Maybe it'll be frustrating. I don't know what it will be like. Mm-hmm. That was sort of how I felt in the beginning. Um, but it turned out to be so easy and so great. So how what we ended up doing was splitting the script in three. So that was a way, I think, to sort of organize who mm-hmm. was going to do what, which was really helpful. Mm-hmm. So we each were sort of accountable for our piece. Um, and then I think you did a lot of the finishing, mm-hmm. the polishing of the whole um, the whole thing so it felt consistent. So we sort of had that loose organization around it. But this is something that I've loved about this group and also in rehearsals and how the play has been directed is that there is no director. Mm-hmm. We're all contributing and we all have tremendous respect for each other. And we all contribute, I think, equally in really different ways. Yeah. And it's just happened so naturally and it hasn't been forced or, you know, anybody needing to have like a specific role per se. Mm-hmm. So that has been such a joy and a, and a surprise, I think, to have it work out. It's like so smoothly. We've performed at several schools now. What have you learned after performing Sally Ride <laughs> for actual real children, <laughs> hundreds of them at once? It's such a joy. It's really, really fun. I think one of the biggest surprises has been to see the kids' faces and that they're being touched by this. You know, you write the thing and you hope that it has those impacts, but it's so hard to know whether anyone's going to get it mm-hmm. and whether you're being obvious enough about what your your points are. So to see these kids and their faces, they, they look so engaged and um and and moved sometimes mm-hmm. like i've you know seen some of the kids just be really just excited and that has been a big surprise i didn't really expect that and on the other end of the spectrum you know we have times where things get a little out of control and it's hard it i think it's going to take a while to to really learn or to really master how to handle those situations yeah for me, it has been that as well. It's I sort of have a sense of what the the playmaking looks like and what the performing looks like, but when you add in the children and essentially the arts education piece, those are different skills that need to be built and exercised about appropriateness for grade level, about crowd control, about the way that you frame questions for kids and how you move through the story and what is what is too much talking? What is not enough talking? How do you go out into the audience and ask children for their responses? And all of those things that I thought I had a pretty good understanding of because I've worked with kids, but I also, and I also have kids, but then when you get 200 of them in a room, it's really a different mm-hmm. ball game. Yeah. You also work with kids via improvisation. The trans actors have shows for children and you teach 
an improv class for elementary kids after school. Why do you work with kids? Why is that important to you? Improv was originally developed around children's theater. That's where it originally sort of came out of, Mm -hmm. um, children's theater games. And so kids are really the perfect person to sort of receive improv, you know, and to to do games and to do scenes. There's so many benefits Mm -hmm. for kids building their confidence and teamwork and learning um, how how to let their creativity flow and to not judge their own ideas and how to not judge each other's ideas. Mm. Um, these are things that kids are learning. At, so I teach third, fourth, and fifth grade, and these are real big issues at that age where they're learning how to be cooperative mm. with each other and to respect each other. It's really hard because you know they, they get worried that it's a reflection on them if they let somebody else embarrass themselves and they don't call it out. I mean, they're really mean to each other. And mm-hmm. there's so many issues around that. And I've seen improv just completely transform kids mm-hmm. who learn how to sort of have each other's backs. That's like one of the biggest things that I talk about right from the beginning is we all have each other's backs and we all we all have the same goal, which is to make each other look really good. Mm-hmm. And, and that shift, it's so fascinating to see some of, you know, some of the kids that are maybe more quote unquote popular that like maybe in their normal classroom setting don't necessarily support the kids that are less popular. Seeing them work together and respect each other is really, it's, mm-hmm. it, I get so much joy out of doing that and helping, helping the kids sort of find that place and also my daughter takes it. So that's, that's the, you know, another big reason why I want to keep doing it is because it's been so good for her to do it. And so she comes to my class and she's a very shy girl. And so improv has been so neat for her to find her voice and to be funny and to be crazy and to just feel that support of other kids and to support them. It's really awesome. What is an improvisational exercise that kids seem to really respond to? Well, what kids always want to get right into scenes. They love the games, but they, they're really excited by getting to do scene work. One scene is where you uh, there's three people, and um, two people are sort of one body. So one person stands behind the other person and puts their arms yes. through the body. And so one person is the arms, and the other person's the body. And then the third person is just sort of the straight person. And kids really love this one, I think, because it takes the pressure off of everybody. Nobody is now really in charge of anything in the way when you just have two people on stage, you feel every time it's your turn to talk, you feel so much pressure and they kids really have a hard time with that. But with the arms, the person who's doing the hands is just doing whatever the heck they want. So they have no pressure. Right. And the person who's the body is just responding to what the hands do. And then the straight person is just responding to the crazy person with the arms that are flying <laughs> on the place. And so it's a really good exercise to teach kids and adults that do it too, um, that all you're doing in improv is responding Mm -hmm. to each other and you don't ever have to invent anything. In fact, don't ever invent anything. Just respond to what happens. Mm -hmm. And if nothing happens, then respond to that. Respond to the silence, you know, respond to whatever it is that's happening. I think this is, there's sort of like a double layer here because the, the other really good thing is that that's such a good sort of philosophy to to have an understanding of in life Mm -hmm. and to talk. So I talk to the kids about like, this should take the pressure off of you. um, First of all, takes the pressure off of you in any kind of situation where you feel nervous about it. But it also 
helps you to see the value in just listening and being a good listener. And that when you're in a conversation and you're just waiting for the other person to finish up so that you can say your thought, you're not aligned. You're not connected and hearing each other. When you are teaching kids, do you find your pattern to be introduce the exercise, do it, and then debrief, tell them what they should have learned from it? Or are they doing that work themselves? How, how does that work in the moment? Yeah, it's, it definitely varies depending on the age. Some of the younger kids, I don't really bother with the follow-up and reflecting part. I, mean, I always say, what did you guys think of that? Mm-hmm. But with the real young ones, I, I tend to not try to push it too much because they just need to do it for a long time and then they can kind of have the reflection. Mm-hmm. But the older kids, certainly like fifth graders and up, Um, and adults, the way that I approach that is I never tell them what they should have learned Mm -hmm. or what um, they should have kind of gotten out of an exercise. And so I just ask them questions and sort of see where it goes. And especially the older the group gets, the more they get very excited about drawing those those connections between improv and life. There's so many. I mean, especially if if I'm teaching adults and there's anybody from the business world, they get very excited about the um, connections between their business and what they're, what's going on at work mm-hmm. and improv. Hmm. So you were involved in several different entrepreneurial groups like Curious Theater Collective and Transactors. You are also an entrepreneur yourself by teaching these classes and you are surrounded by people who are entrepreneurs, you and I talked about how that is a valuable skill for artists to have, the sort of entrepreneurial spirit and chops. What observations have you made about entrepreneurship in the arts? So uh, as you said, I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs like in my friendship circles, but also in my family. My dad is an entrepreneur, my sister, most of my aunts and uncles, my husband. I have, I'm completely surrounded by entrepreneurs and people with that kind of mindset. Um, so it's a it's a sort of mindset that I've just taken on because of being close to all these other people. And so I'm very interested in just how, how you sort of make your own world in that, that way that the entrepreneur approaches things. Mm-hmm. I think sort of this combination of doing your art and teaching your art and finding ways to give back, like whether it's, you know, through the community or joining a group or volunteering, mm. and then sort of approaching your art as as if it's your job, as if you're being paid a lot of money for it, even if you're not. Mm. I've, see, I've seen people with really good, have really good results with, with those sort of things in mind. Mm. I had a couple years ago, I went to a, a music festival, um, called the Creative Musicians Retreat in, in New Hampshire. And they had a composer in residence there, Eve Bulgarian, who's an amazing composer. And I had a I had a, uh, a lesson with her, and I was sort of at a crossroads where I was thinking, well, maybe I should go get my PhD in music. I was sort of unsure what to do with my life. This was right after I had my son. And, and I said, do you think I should go get my PhD? That's what everybody else is doing. That's what all the composers are doing. And she gave me really excellent advice, which was um, that, first of all, I certainly don't have to be an academics to be a, a composer or musician. So she said, if you approach your music like it's your job, 
you may find that you're even more satisfied than if you go into academics and academics isn't for everyone just because that's what a lot of composers do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't um, necessarily mean that that's the only way to do it. What does that mean to you? Approach your music as it's as though it's your job. If I'm in a job and I have a boss who I'm accountable to and I've got certain things that I've got to get done, I'm very organized and um, I create systems to stay mm-hmm. organized and to make sure that I'm meeting the things that I'm supposed to be meeting. And I sort of come out of myself a little bit and think, oh, well, this is what my boss wants me to do. And so I'm going to do it. I'm not going to question mm-hmm. what the the motives are, you know, in general. And But when it's my own art that I have to do that for, I become it becomes much more complex. And I start to question, you know, like insecurities make it harder for me to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if I'm tasked with going out and getting a new client for my job, then I'll do that with much more confidence than I might do it if it's for my own art, hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a legitimacy issue, right? Yeah. If you have a, a, an outside boss or a name of a company or you're getting a certain number of dollars for your work, that adds that adds a certain baked in legitimacy to it that I think leads to that kind of confidence that you're talking about. But if your primary source of accountability is yourself and the work that you're marketing is generated by you, yeah. that's a minefield of insecurity and emotion and and all of that. So it sounds like what you're talking about is is a little bit of distance on that emotional piece and even if you don't have the confidence, essentially forcing yourself to do the work anyway. Mm -hmm. When you were setting up these classes, these improv classes for the kids, why did you decide to do that and how did that go? I uh, do it through Rashkis Elementary School. Mm -hmm. It's an after-school program there and that's where my daughter goes to school. So it was very easy Um, and they were were excited to have this offering there. So the, that side of it was very easy and I think improv is becoming more and more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Parents have heard of it now. They've heard of the benefits for kids, and it's kind of not a hard sell, really. Right. And so filling the classes has been really easy. And because it's an after-school program, kids are there already. They just stay an extra hour. So that all has been much easier than I, than one might have, you know, one might think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to expand those offerings, or do you feel like you have enough on your plate at the moment? I think originally I wondered whether I would expand and try to have, you know, a bunch of classes going on at once. At this point, I have too much going on. And so I'm just doing one class and I do like six week blocks Mm -hmm. until the end of the school year. You and I were talking before we started recording about trying to balance all of the different areas of our lives and not wanting to give things up because they feed us in different ways and also because we have obligations like you know we have to make sure our children are fed and all of that sort of thing but do you have any tips for people who are balancing many things as you are balancing them because from an outside perspective you seem to be doing it with a lot of grace and competence so what's your special secret (laughs) please tell me (laughs) I so I I feel that I do a lot of things that are really scary. I feel like like pretty often I feel terrified of the thing that I'm about to do. Mm-hmm. And so that in addition to it just being a lot of stuff that I'm doing, it could really easily turn into an anxiety situation. And so what I've adapted is this mindset of I'm on the amazing race. <laughs> and this is all 
just sort of a joke and like just it, none of it really well it's not a joke but it's I try I think having a sense of humor has probably been like one of my biggest uh, things that I keep coming back to in my mind is like I'm not saving lives here yeah you know I'm yeah. just kind of trying to get through the day and it's fine and um this is just a big adventure and so I, I'm a highly analytical person and I I tend to go to that place of analyzing what am I doing now? I know these are the right steps that I should be taking and that kind of thing. And so that helps me to, to keep perspective of, of this is just an adventure mm-hmm. and, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's just one one step in front of the other. There was a phase in my life that was felt really crazy and just like I felt like a snowball rolling downhill, you know, and picking up speed. And, and I was getting really emotional about that. And then I I decided that instead of having something happen and then responding to it from a you know really emotional place or or taking it out into like well, what does this mean about me and my life and my choices and stuff, instead I would always respond with well that happened, <laughs> and it had that same sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah. adventure to it. It's like wow, you know, as though somebody as though it was happening to somebody else. It's like yeah. wow, can you believe that happened to her? You yeah. know, and it really. <laughs> It gave me a lot of relief and and helped me insert that sense of humor back into the experience instead of taking everything so seriously, Mm -hmm. which I think I'm apt to do um, Mm -hmm. when things are happening in my life. I think it takes the the sense of finality out of it, too, that like there's no final judgment or like moment if Mm -hmm. if something terrible happens and you approach it with the, well, that happened attitude. It's sort of like letting it go Mm -hmm. instead of using it as something to judge yourself. So, yeah, so I think that it's like this idea that it's just, it's a game Mm -hmm. and there's going to be obstacles and that's part of the game. Julie, what is next for you? So I'm not, I'm definitely not a goal setter or, or planner. I think this is probably an influence that improv has had on me. (laughs) You know, I find that what happens is more interesting than what I plan typically. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this uh, mixture of, you know, I was just saying like, I'm I'm pretty analytical on like w- what's happening and what am I doing right now, but also I'm not attached to like what I'm doing next. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things that I'm doing. I've pl- spent the last like five years planting a lot of seeds that I'm now just sort of like chugging along with with a lot of those things. But yeah, I I sort of don't really know mm-hmm. what's next. Mm-hmm. That's a strong place to to be working from because you're open to possibilities and. You know that people will come and approach you, and then you can say, "This works for me now," or "It works for me six months from now," or you right. know, it might never work for me. But you have so many different things going that there will be no shortage of opportunity, and and leaves you open to the possibility of creating whatever work comes across your imagination. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> Thank you, Julie, for this conversation. It's been so wonderful talking with you and learning things about you that I didn't know. (laughs) Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. You can support us via our Patreon campaign at www.patreon.com slash artist soapbox. For information about today's episode and more, go to artistsoapbox.org. And we're out.